You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. I want to invite you this morning to turn in your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, just the two verses. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Last Sunday, we finished with Pastor Isaac preaching Philippians chapter 1 with a really helpful, productive, meaningful message for us that I took so much away from. He actually preached for us a four-point sermon last Sunday. And, you know, I'm not one to be one-upped, so today I've decided that I, too, We'll preach a four-point sermon. You may be wondering, like, how do we decide that kind of thing? Typically, it's three points, but usually as pastors, we're thinking through the text and, and what this part of the, of the text has for us, what, what seems to really come out most clear and straightforward from the text of Scripture. And then also, we're thinking about what can we really handle as creatures on a Sunday morning in this brief time that we have together. We certainly can't handle everything, and usually it's somewhere around two, three, four points, usually three. But today, once again, for the second week in a row, we will have four. And I think it is helpful to think back for a moment about that great sermon last Sunday in which we considered together really the happiness that comes from living a life that is, quote, worthy of Christ. We considered together this concept of striving together for the faith. And it begs an important question for us to continually answer in our Christian lives. And that is, what does it mean to strive together for the faith? What exactly are we striving for? Well, this morning, I'd like to answer those questions by showing you four, not three, four truths from these two verses, Philippians chapter two, verses one and two. I'll go ahead and read those two verses for us so we can get the landscape of of what we're considering this morning and and then point out each of these four truths and see how God will help us apply them to our lives. This is what Paul says in verse one. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any, consolation of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Before we consider these four truths this morning, first, let's notice Paul's focus in these two verses, which we've seen over and over again so far in this letter to the Philippians, and we'll continue to see it to the very end. He has a central focus of increasing his own joy by increasing that joy in others. Here are two important points that I think sit right in the middle of these two verses that help us to frame out and understand the four truths that we'll see this morning. First is that Paul knows what would make him happy. This is such an important question to answer. What is it that makes us happy? 
It's a central question of life. Every person in the world, in this very moment, every person in this room, at this very moment, is asking and trying to answer that one question. You ask that question, I ask that question, and we answer it together in a variety of ways every single day. It's the central question of humanity. What will make me happy? What is it that makes us joyful? And what's amazing to me about this verse and even this little part in verse two, make my joy complete, is first that Paul knows. There are so many times in my life, and I think there are so many times in your life that we just don't know. We are bombarded by all these other offers of happiness and joy. They come from the world. They come, surely they come from the devil who wants to derail us in our pursuit of Christ and the ultimate happiness that is in him. They come from within us and our own flesh. Our own flesh has desires and, and, and strangely makes promises that if, if we would just fall in with our remaining sin and, and trace out that line, that then we could have this thing that we, we so naturally desire, happiness and joy. But the Apostle Paul, what we're learning from him is what does it really mean to have joy? He knows That's why he's able to say, make my joy complete. That's the first truth that I think is important for us to see right at the start to get some context. Here's the second. The apostle Paul is on a pursuit of this joy. He doesn't set this joy aside for something else. It's central to everything that he does in the Christian life. It's, it's central to everything that he does in ministry. In fact, it is so central that he does something and says something that I would imagine most of us would be uncomfortable saying those words. Make my joy complete. As I've said before, and I've been learning in my own Christian life, I think the reason for that is I have been misled by by probably well-intentioned Christians, by by a kind of well-intentioned theology, that our own happiness and joy is irrelevant, that it should be set aside because there, there are more important things. And therefore, that kind of life that that seeks out the happiness of Christ, that tries to pursue it and increase it and, and, and know it and then give it to others is sort of squashed down where we, we fall under a delusion that really knowing Christ, it's not about being happy. It's not about being joyful. It's about doing. It's not about your own enjoyment of Christ. It's only about his enjoyment of you. But that's obviously not true because here the apostle Paul tells us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a great encouragement and example to us, he says the words, make my joy complete. He's saying, I want my joy to be complete. And of course, we know already from the time that we've spent in Philippians, and we'll know it even better by the end, that the reason he says that is because he knows the secret. 
And the secret is that his happiness and enjoyment of Christ is how Christians glorify Christ. That's how you do it. You do it by delighting in him. You do it, yes, by obeying him, but obeying him with delight and joy and happiness. You do it by seeking this ultimate satisfaction, as we call it, that he becomes the treasure of your heart. He is crowding out all of these other offers and and treasures and things that ultimately can become in our hearts idols. And he is on a pursuit of increasing happiness in Christ for himself and for everyone else. Without understanding that, I have found in my own life, I don't understand the Christian life. I don't understand worship. I don't understand the Bible. I don't understand God until we grasp this. And the more that we grasp it, the more that we understand, and the more that that our Christian lives come into full color, the full color of what they will be in his coming kingdom. That's what his, his kingdom will be. His kingdom will be happiness. It will be happiness effortless. But we're not there yet, are we? Here we are in this fallen world, this fallen people, yet knowing Christ, but we live in the same kind of life. We are living that eternal life now, though imperfectly, we're not there yet. We are living, though we will, happiness effortless, we're living now happiness difficult. We're straining forward, we're striving together for the faith, and this is what it is, to find our satisfaction and joy in Christ, for Christ, because of Christ, through Christ, to the glory of Christ. And so these four truths can really help us to do this because they are, they are packed around those words, make my joy complete. And so what we're going to actually see here are four ifs and four thens, which seem to me to mirror each other and connect. The four ifs come before make my joy complete and the four thens come after make my joy complete and therefore by putting them together, we have a wonderful opportunity to see how can you make your joy complete? How can your joy and mine in Christ flourish and grow? Well, let's see it here first with the first truth. We're learning about joy this morning. In particular, we are learning about Christian joy. And we notice this, the Christian joy, it is same-minded. Same-mindedness is ultimately driven by gospel encouragement. We're going to put together the first if and the first then. And here they are. He says, therefore, we're, we're pulling from everything that Pastor Isaac preached last Sunday. We're keeping it in our minds about striving together for the faith, about the happiness of living a life worthy of Christ. Therefore, he says, if, we might as well say since, that's what he means. It's not a question of whether or not there is encouragement in Christ. There is. Since, if, There is any encouragement in Christ, make my joy complete by being same-minded. 
Therefore, we see the connection, the same mindedness that we are to have as a fellowship or body of believers in a local church or even more broadly with Christians around the world is driven along by something sweet. It's driven along by something beautiful. It's not driven along merely by discipline. It's not driven along by argumentation. It's driven along by encouragement, by the encouragement that is in Christ, the encouraging, building up power of Christ. Therefore, he is our center. He is the center from which we are drawing encouragement. If we're seeking it and drawing it, we're drawing encouragement. And it is that very thing that makes us like-minded, single, same-minded. It's a little bit like, you probably have this around your house, one of the little discs that plugs into the wall and then all around it are little USB plugs so that you can plug in all of your devices and keep them all charged up at the same time. So you plug them all around the outside of it. That one power source is coming in and it's distributing it to all of them and all of them are having the same encouragement at the same time because they're all drawing their power from the same source. That's a picture today of what's happening spiritually in the Christian life when we are living this way when we are together in this way, pursuing the joy of Christ together because of the encouragement of Christ and we become same-minded. It is as though we are all spiritually plugged in to the same central disc and that disc is Christ. And what he is feeding is encouragement. It's coursing through his veins and out into ours. Of course, one way that we could think about being same-minded is to be kind of like copycats of each other. We just kind of, we kind of all do the same thing. We're kind of robotic and we all say the same things and we think the same things. That's really not what this is about because that would, that would take away from all of the beauty of diversity that God has placed into every person that is here. Look around. We are really blessed to be a part of a diverse church, ethnically diverse generationally diverse. We come from all different places and backgrounds, different jobs and skills and giftings and talents and personalities and all the rest. It's a beautiful thing. So, so being same-minded doesn't mean we do away with all of that and we dress the same and we think the same and we talk the same, we cut our hair the same, thankfully. But instead, it means that we are seeing everything through the encouraging lens of the gospel that we're all plugged into the same center and that he is fueling the beauty. He is lighting up the beauty of that diversity. We all have different views. We all have different opinions and those don't have to go away. We, We like different sports teams. We have different political views. We have different ideas about how we should use money and time. We have different views of, of a lot of different secondary issues of like doctrines and, and, and other theological questions that, that aren't maybe quite as clear in the Bible. We have differences. But what's most important and what we're striving together for 
is the central gospel comfort that would be ours. It's interesting because the Apostle Paul uses the word paraklesis. It's a word very similar to the, to the one used to, to describe or name the Holy Spirit. It's a word very close to helper. Therefore, if there is any paraklesis, helping, if there is any comfort in Christ. So what is their central mind focus? The central mind focus Paul has in mind is the comfort of Christ's good news in all things. This is something I think all of us could use more of. We need to see the gospel more clearly, and that's what we're trying to do all the time by making it paramount and being real clear about the distinction between the law and the gospel and really focusing in on what the gospel is as an announcement of good news, not a law that we keep. It's not a, it's not a system or a program to get everybody on the same page so that we all become the same as each other, but rather it is an announcement that is ever comforting us. How often do you think of the gospel in those terms or that term? Comfort. It is a comfort to us. We're not merely talking about sharing the gospel, but we're talking about resting our own minds in the helpful comfort of knowing Christ. There's something far deeper, far richer view of the gospel than merely something that we go and scatter to the world. We do. It's like seeds. We scatter to the world. But we don't do it simply as a tool to get something done, right? What do we do? We take the gospel, and it is our comfort. Like for them, it is about knowing and enjoying Christ, you see what we're doing? We're drawing attention to the often overlooked happiness of knowing Christ. What does it mean to know him, but to enjoy him? That's what it means. That's the thing that seems, it's like so easy to overlook that. I said last week, I've so often overlooked that. That's what it means to know Christ, is to enjoy him. Therefore, the first way that we can use even this truth is to center our minds intentionally in this pursuit, striving together for the faith, to center our minds on the comfort and encouragement of the gospel. When you read the Bible, when you sit and meditate as we should and just in the quiet, maybe a little music on or something to, to help us focus, but we think and meditate on the gospel as our comfort. We might ask and answer that question in those moments. We might pray about that. God, help me understand how the gospel is a comfort to me because that's what it is. God, help me to see why am I so uncomfortable? Why do I have so much discomfort in my life right now? I'm filled with anxieties and worries. I'm filled with fears. I'm filled with dread and despair. Please comfort me. Tell me the gospel. Show me how it comforts me. 
I want to know you because I want to be comforted. There's another one. There's another one. Forget about being comforted. The Christian life is not about being comforted. It's not about comfort. Yes, it is. If it's about nothing else, it's about comfort. True, divine comfort in these moments. Therefore, center your mind on the comfort and the encouragement that comes through the gospel. Second truth, Christian joy is same loved. Here's the next, if, then. Same loved. Notice what he says after verse, in verse two. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, and now second, maintaining the same love. But look up again. Remember how we had the ifs then and they seem to, to kind of line up and they're driving together and, and squeezing in on this, this joy being made complete. There it is. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ and there is, if, since, any consolation of love, maintain the same love. So the same lovedness of believers in a local church or around the world together is actually driven and and characterized as being consoling. It's really interesting that the Apostle Paul uses another word right here in the next clause besides paraklesis, which means virtually the same thing. He's doubling up on consolation and comfort. You think he's trying to make a point? I think he's trying to make a point. Paul doubles down on this dimension of Christian joy. Anytime I see something like this in the Bible, I think, wow, this must be important. It's being said twice. It's being said twice in two different ways. It's the one-two kind of punch. And here it's a punch of comfort. It's a punch of consolation. I think Paul knows something that I don't know. I think he knows something that you don't know. I think he knows that we desperately need comfort in this world of suffering and darkness. Think about the world that we live in. Think about the misery of this world. There are many beautiful things, many just awesome, glorious things that put on display our God who is creator and sovereign and wise, good and happy. It's, it's, it's beautiful in many ways, but, but also it is very dark. It's a hard world out there. You get outside the circle of safety, of, of the restraints of God's natural law and the care of other people, and you get out in the world, all bets are off of what's going to happen to you. It is a hard world out there, dark, fallen, broken. It's easy for us to forget that. It's another one of the reasons why it's so important for us to, to maintain our, our grip on good theology. And, and those catechisms that we use have been really helpful to us. I'm reminded of the Westminster Longer Catechism, similar to the Shorter Catechism, that talks about this world and puts it in some pretty clear language for us to remind us of just how uncomfortable the world is. Listen to this question and answer, in essence, put together, talking about this world. 
the punishments of sin in this world are either inward as blindness of mind, a reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart, horror of conscience, vile affections, or outward as the curse of God upon the creatures for our sakes and all other evils that befall us in our bodies, names, estates, relations, employments, together with death itself. You put all of that together and you start to really feel and see the cloud of sin that hangs over this world and this life. No wonder we are struggling. No wonder we are sorrowful. No wonder we are broken down. We're living in a hard world. But there is something even better. This is the bright, beautiful good news of the gospel. And Paul is trying to show us again what is in the gospel, the thing we need. Comfort. Consolation. It's, it's sort of two pictures in one being presented here of love's consoling power in Christ. One is the picture of, of a group uh, gathered around a friend who has just heard bad news. This is what the gospel does. The gospel is that ultimate friend. The bad news is the bad news of the law, the bad news of our sin and the fall upon the whole world, the curse on the world. And here comes the gospel as that friend who has rallied around us and embraced us in his or her arms. This consolation of love, this consoling power in Christ is like, is like a candle lighting up a dark room. Though we don't realize it all the time, the world is full of darkness. It's darkness everywhere, spiritual darkness. And yet the gospel is a light in the room. The consolation of love is uniquely centered in the gospel. It's empowered by this good news that we have come to love and know. And here we really see the connection between the gospel and love, or agape. That's one of those Greek words you're probably you know, familiar with her before, this rich biblical word of love, putting on display the wonders of God's love. They are one. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, consoling gospel love. And that makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense when we remember again, like we have a thousand times and we'll do it a thousand times more and then another thousand, that the gospel is an announcement of something. It's an announcement of good news. It's an announcement of hope and grace and mercy and love. It is an announcement of divine love and divine comfort. Again, this is so easily overlooked, but let's try to get it into our souls. Let's hold on to it. Write it down if you have a pen. The gospel produces comfort. That's what it's made to do. It's made to comfort you. Remember another catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism. We've, we've, we've talked about this so many times over the last 10 years. That Even that very first question and answer, the first question, what is your only comfort? 
They understood. They knew in life and in death. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that this, this is the way these full-bodied, rich, gospel-loving believers would come together around the most essential truths in the Heidelberg Catechism. And there would be a decision to begin this way. What is your only comfort? It's interesting. It doesn't begin. What is your biggest problem in life and death? What is your biggest failure? What is your biggest sin? What is your only comfort in life and in death. This love and comfort must be, as Paul says, exantes, maintained. This is the challenge. This is the difference between happiness effortless, heaven, happiness difficult, earth. It has to be maintained. And it has to be maintained to our own comfort and the comfort to one another. He says that very thing, make my joy complete by maintaining the same love. Put all of that together. What is he saying? Make my joy complete by letting me see you maintain maximum gospel comfort among you, consoling one another with the good news of Christ, encouraging and helping and feeding and and hugging and holding, maintaining that comfort and love. That's what the word maintaining means that he uses here. It means to hold onto it with your hands, to maintain your grip on it. So that's a warning to us. The warning to us is that this love and comfort is slippery. It can get away. We have to hold on to it. We have to make real intentional effort to do this. So what should we do then? How could we do that? Well, there's lots of ways. In general, let's, we got to flesh this out, but in general, here's what we should do. Watch out for people who are in the dark and suffering and bring them consolation. Simply put, find someone to console with the gospel. Every chance that you have, try to comfort someone with the gospel. Try to remind them of the big, bright, beautiful promises, the the overflowing grace and mercy and hope, the goodness of God that is running after us every single day. When you find someone who clearly has forgotten about that, console them, remind them, tell them again, just how marvelous it is to know Christ. There is another truth, and that is that Christian joy, in addition to being same-minded and same-loved, is spirit-united. The next if-then. If, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, Make my joy complete by being united in spirit. This unity of spirit is is driven forward into and comes out of fellowship. 
Notice the word spirit used twice. It's interesting. It's used two times, but in sort of two different ways. And you'll notice that by the, the translators of your Bible have capitalized the first use of spirit to, to make it the Holy Spirit, his, his name, a reference to him, the Holy Spirit. And the second, in a lowercase s, to, to highlight something else about us, it is about our the depths of who we are, our spirit, our, our, our spiritual essence. Therefore, if we put those two things together, we see something amazing. We see God in his triunity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in particular, his Holy Spirit working to unite us in fellowship. Fellowship with the Holy Spirit results in fellowship among believers which makes us same-souled, S-O-U-L-E-D, same-souled, spirit-united. This is another one of those keys that Paul knows is a part of Christian joy. This is how you make your joy complete, by being in fellowship together, all of us. Consider the second use of spirit, because that's the one that, that I think we, we, we have to grapple with a little bit. It, it's a little bit similar. I try to think of things like in everyday life that, that resonate with me as I, as I try to understand the Bible. Here, one is sort of, sort of like when you play a sport. If you've ever played a sport, or you, 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 know, you watch sports, it's a great time to watch sports with the NCAA tournament. But there is a spirit of the game the people who love sports will talk about from time to time, or maybe the most obvious time is, is during the Olympics. There is actually a, a kind of creed written out about the Olympic spirit. It's a way of talking about the essence of the Olympic games. They're not just games going on. It's not just about uh, rules and winners and podiums and prizes, there's an underlying spirit that brings all of these people from around the world together in which they participate in the same thing. Here's the way the Olympic Creed reads. The most important thing in the Olympic Games is not to win, but to take part. Just as the most important thing is life is, in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. It's talking about that, that underlying spirit it's referencing a matching inner connection of those athletes that's brought about because they have a common center. We're back to that same image again of, of the USB puck that is fueling all of the lines connected to it. Unity is having a matching spirit because of the central Holy Spirit who binds us together. That's why he talks about the fellowship of the Spirit. And here he uses another word. When he says fellowship, you see it in verse 1, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, it's this common word and idea in the Bible of koinonia. It is a close, uniquely Christian, Holy Spirit-enabled mutual association together, that we've come to identify ourselves as belonging to one another. We have become a fellowship. 
Early in... um, Early Christians used a, a kind of symbol, which we've still, you know, maintained some, uh, like mainly on the back of our cars, I think. Uh, sometimes in tattoos and things like that is the ichthus, that image of a fish, you know, it's kind of a, kind of a crude looking fish. There's kind of a legend that, that Christians um, back then would actually use this as a way to identify uh, either each other, maybe if they were under persecution or pressure. Uh, I, I've heard stories, and I don't know if this is true, but that they would come together, and if they were unsure, that, that they would like draw half of the fish in the dust with their foot, and then the other Christian would draw the other half, and then they would know it was that kind of image that brought them together, that, that image of a fish, which is interesting, that they are, that they are together, they are, have been caught up together, or that they would use it to identify meeting places, and they could, they could identify this is where we're going to meet. Now, whether that's true or not is a little bit beside the point because it is the same sense of what it means to have koinonia fellowship together. It's what we're trying to have. It's what every local church is trying to have. We're trying to have brother-sister unity of our souls and to have it in the only way that it can be had is in the triune God, the God that brings us together, the Holy Spirit who we fellowship with. We've been brought together by him and, and, and with him. And he has sealed us and united us together. That's why I, I hope that the relationships that we're building in our church are the kinds of relationships that can supersede all other differences and all other things. That doesn't always happen. I mean, we have remaining sin. We, we have conflicts. We don't get along all the time. Not everybody in here likes everybody else. That's a reality. That's just a reality. But, but again, what are we talking about? We're talking about striving. We're talking about striving together for the faith. And if we want our joy, we do, to be complete with Paul, it's going to take that striving. It's going to take that fellowship. It's going to take being supernaturally spirit united. Now, the only way that that really comes about and grows and increases is the time that we spend together being united, being in fellowship, caring for one another. We have lots of ways that we can do it now, you know, like virtually with texting and email, phones. We're not actually in the same place, but there is something invaluable, invaluable about being in the same room together. We want to maximize that. That's another use of this text is that every one of us, should be making every effort to fellowship with the koinonia, the mutual association of our church. We really have three, three big times that that happens during the week. We have ABF, we have worship, and we have community group. Those three times we are always encouraging as pastors and community group leaders to make that a priority. We want to be here at those times at least, all together, and maybe it just helps us to reframe why, to make our joy complete, to make our happiness in Christ complete. As far as we're able, there's all kinds of things that, that keep us away that are legitimate. Sometimes we, we are weak, physically weak. Sometimes uh, work takes us away for a season or longer, but we want to strive together. 
I've seen some beautiful examples of that. I mean, there, there are people in our church who, who are physically weak and they strive together with every ounce of energy that they have to be as much as they can. That's the picture. That's the striving. I know somebody else in our church that because of work responsibilities isn't able to be here a lot on Sundays and has a kind of jurisdictional job of being in a certain part of town monitoring uh, the business of the job. And do you know what he does? He sits as close as he can to the church and joins us on the live stream. That's striving. That's striving to be together. That's the effort that it takes. But we need to have the why so that our joy will be made complete. That's what all of us want and Paul is telling us how we can have it. The final truth this morning is that Christian joy is also single-purposed. And I think we get another surprising picture of what is central to our purpose as Christians. And that is affection and compassion. Notice the very last words of verse two. Intent on one purpose. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, But when I look at these things in preparation for preaching, I do my best to understand them. And it seems to me that actually this is a difficult one to translate. Because you know, when they're translating, we're having to add things and move things around to get it into English so that it'll make sense to our ears. But if you go back and look at the actual words, not all the words are exactly there. We're doing the best that we can to make sense of it. These are actually the words literally, intent this one perhaps with one intention. This is the message that Paul is sending. With one intention, live your life together. And notice again the if then. It's the last if just before he says that central thing about make my joy complete. If any affection and compassion, and then he closes out tying it together with Intent this one, this one attitude, this one motivation, this one purpose. Given the connection of the parts in the passage, the central intention seems to me that we would, through the gospel, spread affection and compassion that comes from God. Quite truly, the spread of Christian happiness. That is what affection is. That is what compassion is. That's what the consoling love of the gospel is. The fuel of ultimate satisfaction, comfort, and happiness in Christ. It really highlights, though, it really highlights the multifaceted nature of the Christian life. There's so much happening. It's not simple. It's really complicated. There are lots of 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 pieces working together. God is at work in so many different ways and and we're learning to to keep those together, but we want to focus in on the center. What's the center of what, what, what is Christ saying in the gospel? This is why we're really serious about making sure we remember that it's, it's good news. The gospel is good news without any mixture of bad news whatsoever. There's no bad news in the gospel. The bad news is from the law. The law has told us where we failed. We, we, don't, we don't deserve anything from God. We don't deserve to be in, in, in happiness effortless. We don't deserve to be with him or know him. That's the bad news. But the gospel doesn't say any of that. 
The gospel says the good news. What is he trying to say? What is he saying to you? He's saying to you affection. He's giving you compassion. That's what the gospel is. And that is a beautiful reality for us to get our hearts around in the midst of so many things happening, so many things going on in the Christian life and God's work in us. I kind of have been thinking about it in it's a little bit like a crown. It's like a crown that you would wear that would really symbolize kind of what you're, what you're about. And there's kind of two kinds of crowns I, I think of when I, when I think of these truths. One is a, a crown of vines. You know, it's the kind that's got all of these vines intertwined into that ring. And it's an amazing kind of artistic blend of, of different strands and truths and beautiful promises. And they're all connected together, interwoven that's really a picture of what the Christian life, what, what the gospel is doing. It's interweaving all of these different things. We're seeing, we're seeing them today. Consolation and comfort and love and affection and compassion and promises and hope. But then there's another kind that maybe, I don't know, the thing that comes to mind most for me is you've seen the, the crown on the Statue of Liberty. It's an interesting kind of crown that instead of the pieces all being intertwined like the vine, they're all pointed out. And I've read that the, the reason that that crown is that way is it's symbolizing the, the light of the country being sent out to the seven seas and the seven continents of the world to share that with the world. That's another, like we can't even do it with one crown. We have to have more than one crown. But the second crown is really another picture of that. You see, that's what Paul is doing. He is showing that, that all of these truths of the gospel are interconnected in our lives and at work in us. And then they're producing this outward reach. That's why he's written these words. That's why he's telling them these things is because he wants to make his own joy complete by seeing their joy made complete in Christ in these ways. What is this light? that has been sent out from the gospel to sinners like us, it is a declaration of God's affection. Literally, literally, the words that he uses are tender mercies. And then right after tender mercies, affections, he uses the word compassion, which is the word mercies. But he's really hammering away at our need to see that the gospel is giving us mercies. It's ever entwined with his sovereignty and his wisdom and his goodness and his happiness. Intertwined there are the tender mercies upon tender mercies upon tender mercies. And then it really leads out into our purpose as ambassadors for Christ because we are being called here to be intent on this purpose to declare God's tender mercies. That ought to be the, the real flavor of our lives. I don't, that's not, that is not the way that you always think about me. I know that's the truth. And it's not always the way that I think about you or that we think about each other. But this is the picture. This is what we're striving for imperfectly. So I think that we should, we should as a church, think carefully about this. And we as individuals should think carefully about our intent that's the last application here is, is to get in tune with your intent. Think about what the intent of your life is. What is your ultimate intention? What are you trying to do? That's another way to say intent. 
What are you trying to do with your life? Paul here, among other things that are all connected, would say, make your life intent on one purpose, and that is to magnify the tender mercies, the affection and compassion of Christ in the gospel. Do everything you can. Use the law to the greatest advantage to magnify the mercies. Use all of the things in life that happen to you or around you to magnify and turn them with God's help because that's what he's doing. He's working all things for good and this is the good he's working. To work all things for good to magnify the consoling power of the gospel that there is an ultimate, unending, treasuring, satisfying happiness that God has delivered through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when we see that our intentions don't match, let's make them match. Let's strive together, all together. Of course, this all begins. We know this all begins by coming to faith in Christ. It could be that you're here this morning or you're on the live stream and this is the step that needs to to be taken in your life. You need to come to Christ. You need to repent of your sin and place your trust in him. Well, you have been given, if you've been listening, you have been given, you've been given good reasons. And our prayer is that God would work in every heart that he wills to bring them to faith and give us everything that we need so that we can believe in him to begin with and that we can be happy in him forevermore. That's really our prayer. And we want to shape our lives around that. We need his help. So let me invite you to stand now at the end of this time. We'll pray together about this and then, and then sing and, and pray that our hearts would really reflect these truths to him as we sing. That we take these away. Don't let them fall out of your journal or out of your mind when you walk out the door. It's cold. Don't get distracted by the cold. Keep it in your heart. Think about these things. Strive. Let's strive together. Father, we need your help. We are so, we are so weak. We are so needy. Um, we pray that you would, you would work by your Holy Spirit to unite us in ways that we, we haven't been united before. We're striving to, but want to see more of that. Please help us. We pray ultimately that you would reshape our view of you and of the gospel. We have embraced so many things that are right, and yet we know there are these things mixed in there that are just confusing and off, and some of them are just plain wrong, and we pray you'd, you'd root them out. Help us to look fully into your word, into, into uh, verses like this, this morning, that we would be able to really understand um, what you're communicating to us about this life and the happiness that you, you are giving to us by being our God and our King. And we pray that would work in us to satisfy and comfort our hearts, console us in the, the darkness and suffering of our, of our lives, the fears and worries and anxieties. And I pray then that that, that would be evident and outflowing to others around us and um, that we would be ambassadors of affection and compassion because of you. And I pray this as we sing now in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.